Welcome to the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. This ain't your grandma's podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast, episode 28. Aaron Batty here, your host. As always, this is brought to you by 5MinuteBibleStudy.com. On the website, there are a series of new articles. Uh, one is on the chronology of the Bible, or the lack thereof. The fact that a lot of Bible writings, especially historical books, we assume that they are solely and wholly chronological in their telling of facts, Bible characters, when they lived, the things they did. And that's all, not always the case. And so I have three new articles on this aspect of reading historical books chronologically and how that can pose a problem whenever you're putting certain details together. It also makes a big difference whenever you're interpreting certain passages, and one that we get to in the third part of that three-part article series is Luke chapter 22, verses 17 through 20, about the cup and the Lord's Supper. So if you'd like to, you can go check those out at 5MinuteBibleStudy.com and give those some reads. There's other new articles besides that. Now, with that being said, let's introduce today's episode. Uh, Acts chapter 8, we're going to talk about the baptism of the Samaritans and a guy named Simon the Sorcerer, a dark worker of dark magic. He tries to buy miraculous power from the disciples, or from the apostles, I should say, Peter and John, who come up to visit the new Christians in Samaria. And there's something that we learn there that's very important to people who have just become Christians. And it's brought out in the statement, they had only been baptized. There's something very important in that statement, which we'll get to, and we'll explain this rather odd statement, they had only been baptized. Before I get into that, we need to hear a word from our sponsors. Hello there from your local charismatic church. We're seeking a full-time pastor with at least a master's degree in theology and tongue speaking. Sorry. Uh, back to what I was saying. He must have at least 1,000 hours of speaking in tongues. It would be preferred if he has a minor in theater. Someone that has children is also preferred, as being able to talk to babies will be helpful with speaking in tongues. The job will entail considerable running around on stage, so it will need to be less than 250 pounds and in good physical conditioning. If you have heart failure or chronic lung issues, please do not apply. Also, if you have a history of head injuries, please reconsider your application. There's a risk of sustaining concussion or internal cranial hemorrhage from violently being thrown to the ground by the sudden baptism of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, there's very little pre-qualification. We look forward to meeting you at the local Charismatic Church. Visit the local Charismatic Church near you.com to apply. This is a fake ad. So we're ready for the main dish. And as I said, we're going to be talking about Acts chapter 8 and the baptism conversion of the Samaritans. So I'll tell a story to you just briefly, and then we'll get into what happens after the Samaritans are baptized. Instead of reading it to you, just allow me to go over it to you in brief. Um, you're welcome to read. It will be Acts chapter 8, and verse 1 is where we'll start. Now, if you're not super familiar with Acts 8 and the setting there, it would be helpful to go back all the way to Acts chapter 6. Um, as recently as Acts chapter 7, there's Stephen a man that was chosen among seven other men in Acts chapter 6 to serve needy widows in the church at Jerusalem. Well, Stephen has just been stoned to death by leading authorities, Jewish uh, people within the city of Jerusalem, and because of that, there is a great dispersion, the Bible calls it. People are scattered, specifically Christians, are scattered all over the place. 
They go right, left, north, and south. And one of the people that scatters from Jerusalem, his name is Philip. He's known as Philip the Evangelist, traditionally. So Philip, he leaves to go north to Samaria, a great city. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom back in the day when it existed. Anyway, so Philip goes up there preaching, and the Bible says that he preached Christ to them. And while we're not really focusing on that point of the whole story today, ultimately preaching Christ to them resulted in these people being baptized. Now, they were baptized after the fact they had seen several people who had been paralyzed and lame, made completely healed with a snap of a finger. Also, there were people that were demon-possessed, and Philip was able to cast out the demons from being in them and possessing them. The Bible specifically mentions there was a guy named Simon the Sorcerer. He was a worker of dark magic. Dark magic and all that makes up a lot of feature films nowadays, um, really catches people's interest. Well, this was one of those guys. He had a hand in the conjuring up of spirits, and so he was affiliated with these unclean spirits that were being cast out of people who were demon-possessed. He was the ringleader of them. And the people followed him. He had them in the palm of his hand. In fact, the Bible says in verse 9, I will read this to you, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with sorceries for a long time. The way that this man is described is he is described, like if you took Christ's name and you plugged it in there for Simon, and of course you took out the idea of practicing sorcery, you would have a description of Jesus Christ and his followers. Them claiming him to be God, following him, astonished at the great wonders that he was performing. So really what you have here is you have Simon the sorcerer um, going head-to-head with the power of Jesus Christ represented by Philip the Evangelist who is performing miracles in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even Simon himself is also astonished, though. He realizes, (laughs) this is the real deal here. And even he, the Bible says, believes and is baptized. Many in the city believe and are baptized. Uh, And so they're converted to this new sect known as Christianity. Well, something happens there in verse 14. This second part of the story occurs in verse 14 and extends through verse 25, which is where this story ends. Simon the sorcerer is baptized, and then word gets out to the church in Jerusalem. The Bible said earlier in the story that the only people that remain in Jerusalem as far as Christians were the apostles. So the apostles and the church in Jerusalem, they hear about this great conversion in Samaria, and they send Peter and John, the great apostle Peter and great apostle John, to go and visit and lay hands, the Bible says, on these people. It's very important that we understand the exact phrases that are used here. It says, the people had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, The Holy Spirit had fallen upon none of them, the Bible says. So Philip and John are sent up there. They lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, whatever that means. Then Simon the sorcerer goes up to Peter and John, and it doesn't say whether or not he's also received the Spirit at this point, whether or not he's had hands laid on him, but he sees that through the laying on of their hands, the Holy Spirit is given. And so he says, let me buy this power from you so that whoever I lay hands on, 
I also can transfer this power. And Peter rebukes him sharply. And he says, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And Simon answered in response and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things you've spoken about me may happen. And that's pretty much the end of the story. So I could go into the full detail of this story, and if you want the full story... I would encourage you to go to the Chapel Grove Church of Christ YouTube page, type in there, Three Things Simon Saw by Aaron Batty, and I have a whole 50-minute sermon where I go into more than what I'm going to go into today. I had three main things that Simon saw, which I covered in that sermon, but I'm just going to cover one of the things that Simon witnessed that day, and this is very important to people that have just been baptized, or shall we use the words of the Holy Spirit in this passage, they have only been baptized. There was something that happened in the first century when people were baptized that I'm proposing to you does not happen today. This was limited to the first century for a very good reason. And this has to do with the relationship between baptism, salvation, and receiving the Spirit. Now, the subject of the Holy Spirit is a pretty vast topic, and we're not going to even touch the hem of the garment hardly today. But what I do want to do... (laughs) what I do want to accomplish today is just give you a little taste and introduce the subject to you. Open the door a little bit and allow you a good starting point to then start your study of this topic if that's what you want to do. Um, Let me start off by helping organize your thoughts and my thoughts as we go through this to have good structure along the way by asking three questions. I want to ask these questions. I want to give you a chance to think about them. So I'll pause for just a couple of seconds after each one. And then what I want to do is I want to answer these questions by just going directly to the text. And we're going to actually read some of the verses that I just kind of paraphrased in the retelling of the story a second ago. Okay, so here are the three questions that I think are important to understanding the relationship between what happens at baptism, um, when salvation occurs, and when the Holy Spirit is given in the story of Acts 8. The first question is, why did the apostles, Peter and John, have to come to Samaria? Okay, the next question is, did the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit at the moment they were baptized? Okay, and third question, what happened when the apostles laid hands on the Samaritans? Okay, I told you I wanted to give you a second to think about each of those questions before we answer them. So now let's do this. Let's read the questions again, and then immediately after each question, I'm going to read a passage from the text that will just answer the question directly. The first question was, why did the apostles Peter and John have to come to Samaria? The Bible says in Acts 8 and verse 14 and 15, the Bible says, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God... They sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So, it's very obvious here that Peter and John had to come up in order to give the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, to these people, 
Remember, they were already believed, they were already baptized, they had received the Word of God. That's a, an idiom to describe that they had submitted themselves to the Word of God. They were saved. Um, and so Peter and John went up there to give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. The next question was then, did the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit at the moment they were baptized? Now, hopefully, you were able to hear the verses and answer that yourself, but just in case, let's read verse 16. It says afterward, For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, referring to the Holy Spirit, they, the Samaritans, had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the text says that they had not received the Holy Spirit, at the moment they were baptized. The third question was, what happened when the apostles laid hands on the Samaritans? And it says in verse 17, to answer this, Then they, the apostles, laid hands on them, the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. So putting that all together again, Peter and John had to come from Jerusalem to Samaria because even though Philip was an evangelist and a worker of great miracles, he was not an apostle. This is not the same Philip that was part of the twelve going back to the Gospels, this is a different Philip. And he did not have the ability to transfer the gift of the Holy Spirit because he was not an apostle. So Peter and John come up, they lay hands on these people because, according to this, the Holy Spirit is not given to the Christian at the moment of baptism. When you're saved, you do not just immediately receive the Holy Spirit if Acts 8 is any indicator. So they had to lay hands on them, and then, at that point, these people received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Up to that point, they had only been baptized. Now, this should answer quite a few questions that you may have already had on this subject to begin with. Acts 8 is a very important and helpful passage in understanding the relationship of the gift of the Holy Spirit to baptized, saved Christians. But this also might just provoke more questions. And some of those questions I hope that I can anticipate and answer for you now. So what we're going to do is we're going to answer three separate other questions. The first one being, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? The second one, we'll talk about when and how a Christian receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we'll answer, perhaps you're still wondering, why is this gift even given? You'll understand after you understand what the gift is. So what is the gift of the Holy Spirit would be the next logical question. Let's get into that. I'm going to read several passages of Scripture. So if you're sitting down and just listening to this, it might be helpful to read along in your Bible, but if you're in the car, I understand. So I'm just going to read several passages together. I'm going to give a little bit of commentary on some of them, but overall, I'm just going to try to let the Bible speak for itself. And that's really what I'm trying to do here today. I'm trying to let the Bible just answer our questions for itself. So here you go. What's the gift of the Holy Spirit? I think a good place to start is in Mark chapter 16, verses 16 through 18. There, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So you'll notice here several different things, signs that would follow those that were uh, baptized. They believed, they were baptized, they were saved, and casting out demons, speaking in tongues, taking up serpents, not dying, drinking deadly poisons, not dying, laying hands on the sick, and they would become healed. These are the, the things that would be gifted to disciples after they were baptized. 
Notice now in Acts chapter 8, verse 6 through 7, we see an example of this. Philip is mentioned. He is a Christian who has believed and been baptized, and we see these signs follow him. And then the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. That's exact things, or at least some of the exact things, that Jesus said would follow those that believed. In verse 13, goes on to say, Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So Philip continued to exhibit these gifts. In the same chapter, verses 19 through 20, I think this is a helpful note as well. The Bible says that Simon said, Give me this power also, talking to Peter and John, that anyone on whom I lay may uh, I'm sorry, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 says, But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. So here Peter is clarifying to us that when Simon's wanting the ability to perform miracles and to also transfer this miraculous power, uh, Peter is calling this the gift of God. The gift of God is the ability to perform these things, the things that Jesus said would follow those who believed. That's important. Now going to later in the book of Acts, to Acts 19, verses 5 through 6. This is the next closest parallel to Acts chapter 8 in terms of Christians being baptized and then receiving the Holy Spirit. So pay attention to what it says. When they heard this, the Ephesians, that is, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. So there it is again. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 and verse 9. These verses also give clarity to what the gift of the Holy Spirit is. It says, these, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. To another faith, by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healings, by the same Spirit. And if you look at the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 12, it is a chapter talking about the many miraculous gifts or spiritual gifts that were given to the church after they believed and were baptized, Christians would receive these gifts, and they were being instructed in these things in this chapter. Acts chapter 2, backing up now, uh, to the first sermon, the first gospel sermon after the establishment of the church, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Holy Spirit gave them the ability to speak in foreign tongues they had not studied. This is what Jesus said would follow those who believe, remember. Jumping down to verse 16, it says this, Peter the speaker, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, I will give my spirit, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So here Joel is prophesying about a time to come when the Holy Spirit would be given, or these gifts of the Holy Spirit would be given. Prophecy, miraculous visions, miraculous dreams. In verse 38 of the same chapter, we're very familiar with these verses, at least most people are. It says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, I'm not going to go all into Acts 2, verse 38 and 39, but if you back up and look at the verses, verse 4, what happened there, verses 16 through 18, and what Joel prophesied, the gifts that would be given, and then Peter's words there, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, this should give us some inkling of what the gift of the Holy Spirit was. So, I believe the gift of the Holy Spirit, based off of all these verses and more, is a reference to gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. It's a reference to miraculous gifts or spiritual gifts that were promised to those that believed and were baptized, going back to Mark 16, verses 16 through 18. Now the question is, when and how is the gift of the Holy Spirit given? And that takes us back to Acts chapter 8, and so we'll read again verse 16. It says there, For as yet the Holy Spirit, that is, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now I brought attention to this statement earlier, and I'm bringing attention to it again, because here in this verse we understand some clarification to what many people believe about the gift of the Holy Spirit and when it's given. Many people believe that the gift of the Holy Spirit is conferred to Christians immediately upon believing on and accepting the Lord Jesus into their heart. But if you pay attention to the story of the Samaritans, they had done that, and they still had not received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, that can't be true. Another popular belief that people have is that the gift is conferred to Christians immediately upon being baptized. And that's what Peter was indicating back in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 39. But in this story, the Samaritans had only been baptized. That's the very reason I draw attention to this phrase. Because they had only been baptized, the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them. They had not, quote-unquote, received the Holy Spirit. And so that kind of blows that myth. Some people believe that the gift is salvation itself. And this is just kind of a fancy name for describing uh, salvation, a gift of the Holy Spirit. But you know, we've already observed that the person puts on Christ and is saved at the point of baptism, and the Samaritans had done that. They had received salvation, and yet they had only been baptized, the Bible says. So that same phrase speaks again of the fact that the gift can't refer to salvation itself, according to Acts 8. And then finally, some people believe that the gift is the personal presence of the Holy Spirit coming into the Christian's heart to dwell. And that's supposed to be, depends on you know the person and how they describe it, but generally that's supposed to be some type of confirmation of becoming a Christian to that individual. But again, the story, the Samaritans had been Christians for several days before Peter and John came up to Samaria and laid hands on them before they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so that means they would have been, let's just say, three days or more without knowing or being confirmed in their hearts that they actually were Christians and were saved? See, that doesn't add up either. So what does Acts chapter 8 actually say? Now at this point I'm risking redundancy, but I think it's actually very helpful in this case to repeat these verses of Scripture so that we hear them clearly and we understand exactly when and how the gift is given. So what I'm going to do now is read again Acts chapter 8 and verses 16 through 19. It says, Therefore, as yet he, the Holy Spirit, had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, Peter and John, laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
When Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Notice again the verse that we already read in Acts chapter 19, but I want to read it again um, right up against this other passage we just read. Verse 5 in Acts 19, When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Remember, Paul is an apostle and lays hands to give them the gift. There's also one more passage that's relevant to this in 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. It says there, Therefore I, Paul, remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So when you take all these verses together, and you ask the question again, when and how was the gift of the Holy Spirit given? I answer that question with a question, and that is, why did Peter and John have to make the trip from Jerusalem to Samaria? The answer is because the gift of the Holy Spirit was only conferred by the hands of a living apostle, and Philip wasn't an apostle. Now, at this point, somebody might object, and they might say, well, doesn't Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39 doesn't that say that the gift of the Holy Spirit was promised to as many as the Lord our God will call? That's what verse 39 says. And the answer to that question is yes. As many as met the conditions of that promise. Now, before you um, shriek or anything, pay attention to what John chapter 3 and verse 16 says. Pretty familiar verse that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? When that passage is used by some of our denominational friends who don't believe that baptism is the point in time in which God washes our sins away, rather it's simply at the moment of belief in the heart, um, we tell that person, that's true, belief, you, you can't be saved without believing in Jesus, but later Scripture tells us that saving faith is more than just agreeing in the heart that Jesus is Lord. So you would tell that person to keep on reading, right? And later scriptures will qualify this scripture in John 3.16. The same thing happens in 1 John 2, verse 2. There John says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now there is a body of doctrine, or a body of belief known as universalism, which takes passages like this and claims that the whole world is... Uh, covered by the blood of Christ, and everyone will be saved without exception because of statements like this. And you know, that passage right there, it says that Christ's blood was shed for the whole world, where he was a sacrifice for the whole world. But we would also tell that person that, yes, that's true, but keep on reading your Bible. And later scripture will tell us that the whole world must respond to Jesus in saving faith in order to gain access to Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. So that verse alone does not tell us the whole story. Other scriptures will qualify that to say that the whole world can be saved, but the whole world won't be saved because they won't do what is necessary in order to receive this blessing. And so just like with John 3.16 and 1 John 2 verse 2, and we could use other scriptures for examples, but we won't, Acts 2 verse 38 says that the gift of the Holy Spirit is for those who are baptized and saved. But later scripture, namely Acts chapter 8, tells us that the Christian then had to have the hands of an apostle laid on them in order to qualify in receiving the gift. So later scripture, again, qualifies previous scripture. 
And so that answers, I believe, effectively when and how the gift of the Holy Spirit was given. And so that brings us to question number three, why is the gift given? Now, there are two chapters of, in the Scriptures in the New Testament, both by the pen of Paul, which are very helpful in learning about the purpose of miraculous gifts. Those are 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and Ephesians chapter 4. What I want to do is go to Ephesians 4 to answer this question about why is the gift given. And before I read verses 7 uh, through 14, I want to say something about the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is one of the most positive books that Paul has ever written. He never says anything negative in there, but really that's beside the point. The point is that Paul is explaining things uh, that are he calls mysteries of the kingdom of God. When he says mysteries, he's saying things that in previous ages were not made known from God to man, but in this time and climaxing in the writing of Paul, God is revealing himself and his redemptive plan through Paul and through the other apostles as they write down the scriptures. And so um, in doing that, this revelation is being given, and Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Verse 11 then explains why these gifts were given, these miraculous gifts, these spiritual gifts, for the purpose of revelation. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, two of those offices, apostles and prophets, or miraculous offices, which are no longer in existence today, contrary to what some churches say. And these offices were given, these gifts were given, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Until, verse 13 says, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. This passage is telling us that miraculous gifts were given to reveal God's will until we had reached a level of complete knowledge in terms of revelation being written down, as we understand when we read this in pairing with 1 Corinthians 13. The Bible says there, Paul says, that when that which is complete... God's revelation is completed, then God's partial revealing of His revelation to various different men, that is Peter and Paul and Matthew and whoever else, um, He would be done giving revelation in part, and the revelation would be completed in one place, and we call that the Scriptures today. By the way, I have a YouTube mini-series on this. It's called The Ending of Miracles. Go to the 5-Minute Bible Study YouTube page, and it's a three-part video series. If you'd like to hear a verse-by-verse breakdown of 1 Corinthians 13 and this topic. But with all that said, the purpose of spiritual gifts is twofold. First, it was to reveal new revelation. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, we just read that, is one verse that teaches this. John 16, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Same chapter, verses 28 through 29. And 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 5 are a few passages which teach that spiritual gifts were given to reveal new revelation. Their secondary purpose, 
at least, was to confirm new revelation. A great verse to show that is in Mark chapter 16 and verse 20, and this is at the very end of those verses I read before. Remember where Jesus said, These signs will follow them that believe. I do want to read this. This is a very helpful passage. Mark 16 and verse 20 says, And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. Confirming the word through the accompanying signs. For just a moment, imagine Philip. He goes to the city of Samaria, and there's this Simon the Sorcerer who's got the people in the palm of his hand, right? He's a ringleader of these spirits, these unclean spirits that are possessing people. And Peter, or not Peter, but Philip comes in and he says, I command these spirits to come out of these people. <laughs> and they, they don't. Or maybe he doesn't even say that. Maybe he just comes up and he says, there is a man that was came to earth and claimed to be God. He was God. Um, he died, was crucified by the Romans. He was in the grave for three days, and he rose back from the dead to life. There's 11 of us still around that witnessed it, and uh, I'm proclaiming that he is the king of the Jews and that you need to enter his kingdom. The people would scoff at him. And he would say, no, but it really happened. <laughs> and he'd say, there's, there's a whole lot of people back in Jerusalem that said it happened. But instead of doing that, the, one of the first things mentioned in Acts chapter 8, rather, is that Philip performed great signs. And these signs confirmed the message in a time when the widespread confirmation of the resurrection and the widespread revelation of God was not completed yet. And so it was necessary in that time for God to reveal new revelation about the Christ for him to confirm that revelation through miracles. And when Philip starts casting out the unclean spirits that Simon the sorcerer is in cohorts with, even Simon is astonished and believes and is saved. And so that's one of the purposes that Mark 16 said was that of miracles, was to confirm new revelation. And because of that, you may be asking the question now, are there spiritual gifts today? And the answer to that question is no. <laughs> There's at least number one, because there are no more apostles to confer the gift anymore. Number two, because there is no more revelation from God that needs revealed or confirmed. According to Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter, Jude verse 3, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, and the ending of Revelation. And then three, because every purpose that spiritual gifts were given to accomplish are satisfied in the written scriptures by the testament of the written scriptures themselves. So no, spiritual gifts are not possible today anymore. And again, I would encourage you to go listen to that three-part video series on the ending of miracles if you'd like more on that. That's the main thrust of the point that I wanted to bring out from Acts 8 and the Samaritans and what happened to them. So I hope that wets your whistle as we say sometimes. I hope that gives you at least a, an opening of the door into this study of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, something that was limited to the first century, something that we, we don't have today, um, but we do have something that's much better, and that's what those gifts were building toward, and that is the Word of God, uh, which was breathed out by the Spirit. And so I encourage you, as I always do on 5-Minute Bible Study, to pick up your Bibles, read it every day, continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. Well, that will do the 5-Minute Bible Study podcast today. 
I'm debating on what my next episode will be about. I think that it's going to be about a new little series of articles that I've been writing, which have to do with being able to interpret the Bible. Can we interpret the Bible correctly? How much of it can we interpret correctly? And can we even know the certainty of certain things revealed in Scripture? That's kind of what my last two articles about the naked truth about the truth, if you go on the website and see that article is about. And then the last one I just released yesterday, Understanding the Nature of Revelation, an Essential Discussion. So if you don't want to read those articles, then stick around, and I'm probably going to release those on a podcast where I talk about the contents of those, what I believe are important discussions. Until then, until next time, this has been the 5-Minute Bible Study Podcast. Ooh.